he had a pinched nerve, so he couldn't walk. So he was um, hobbling and, and uh, really limited um, Thursday evening. And then Friday, he was feeling a lot better. So he was like, hooray, you know, um, uh, back to life. And then around 7 o'clock last night, he started, like, vomiting. And um, he's been um, bedridden again, feeling nauseous. And so hopefully he gets better soon. Um, Micah has kindly volunteered to. Micah's um, taking care of Daddy today um, at home, fetching him drinks and things like that. So um, hopefully... Um, Hopefully next week you guys will get to see Roy. I think it's been several weeks now since you've been able to see him or Micah. So um, I thought today I would share a little bit about some things I've been thinking about and reflecting on since our trip to the U.S. Um, our trip to the U.S. had many highlights. We Disneyland was pretty awesome. The national parks were definitely amazing, and it was really nice to have the whole family together, both Roy's family and mine. We haven't all been together since our wedding 10 years ago, so it was really nice to have the two sides all together. One thing that we did that was kind of actually a last-minute thing we did like the day before we flew out, um, thanks to my brother-in-law, Paul, who suggested it, was a trip to the California Science Center. Now, um, he saw that our boys loved the Exploratorium uh, Museum in San Francisco. So he said, hey, let's go to the California Science Museum. And I'm so glad he suggested this because it was a fantastic museum. If you ever go to Los Angeles, it's got, it's part of the nine free museums there. And it has over 150 interactive exhibits, um, a massive IMAX theater. And um, the best of all was the fact that the California Science Center is the home to the Endeavour Space Shuttle. This space shuttle completed 25 missions in space, including the first service mission to the Hubble Space Telescope and the first mission to add a U.S.-built component to the International Space Station. So this is not a model or a replica. This is the real thing that was in space 25 times, and they have this whole exhibit about how they transported this ginormous you know, space station to uh, this museum. And they actually had the wheels from the last flight Endeavour did to space. And it says, touch them, like you could actually touch them. And it was pretty incredible to touch something that had been out in space. Um, it was, it was, I really loved um, this experience. One of the fascinating things um, I learned was that because space shuttles have to endure extreme temperatures, right? On the one hand, they have to endure the extreme cold of outer space that can drop as low as negative 157 Celsius. That's cold. <laughs> I know we feel cold in Melbourne, but that, that's really cold. But also, when the space shuttle re-enters Earth's you know, atmosphere, it has to go through a temperature, the heat, as high as 1,649 degrees Celsius, which melts steel. And so in order to keep the space shuttle intact and to keep the astronauts safe inside, they have designed tiles, special tiles made of special you know, components that, that go around the space shuttle. But what's really interesting about this is that because different parts of the space shuttle experience different temperatures. For example, the nose of the space shuttle and the tip of the wings are, um, you know, have to endure more heat than the rest of the space shuttle. And since, as you know, heat 
causes things to expand and cold causes things to shrink. And you can imagine the extreme, the extremity of the intensity of the, of the temperature means that there's a lot of shrinkage and expanding happening. So as a result, they have to customize every single tile that goes on this space shuttle so that when it shrinks and expands, <clears throat> they do so without compromising the integrity of the whole. So they have a number on every single one of the 24,200 tiles that go around this space shuttle. And each one has been engineered and fitted for the temperature that is expected for that exact placement on the space shuttle. Now, when you look at this space shuttle and you, and you learn, this is just one fact, right? This is just the outside tiles. Imagine everything that goes inside, right? When you, when you look at this space shuttle and you learn about every, every engineering and mathematical and, and, and um, you know, scientific uh, brain power that goes into this, you can't help but look at this and know, yep, there is intelligence and intentionality behind this machine. But did you know that human beings learn to fly by studying birds? Since ancient times, right, since the beginning of time, human beings have been fascinated with birds. So, for example, in ancient Egypt, birds were admired and even worshipped for their beauty, their power, and their aerodynamics. For example, Horus, which was the god of the kings, was depicted with a falcon head, known for its speed, strength, and agility as a hunter. Also, in the Aboriginal creation story, you have the creator spirit, Bonjol, which is a wedge-tailed eagle. In Greek mythology, you have Icarus, who tries to fly on wings made of wax, which melts too close to the sun. And so human beings have tried for centuries to fly by observing birds. German engineer Otto Lilienthal observed ways that birds glide, and he created the first kind of uh, forerunner of hang gliders, but he couldn't figure out how to control the movements. And so unfortunately, um, in 1996, his glider stalled and he fell 15 meters and he died from his injuries. It wasn't until December 17, 1903, that two brothers, Orville and Wilbur Wright, flew their invention 37 meters for 12 seconds at 10.9 kilometers per hour. And this is the famous photograph that depicts how they're hovered over the ground just, right? And the key to their success was observing vultures gliding around in circles. And as they watched these birds change direction while flying, and they saw that the bird would, would uh, change the, the angle of the wing that was facing the wind. And so they observed this, and they developed this concept into their airplane by building lifts onto the wings so that, you know, when they want to change direction, that flap would go up to catch the wind, and then they'd be able to turn and maneuver the plane the way that they wanted to. So that's 1903. It's kind of amazing if you think about it, that before 1903, there were no airplanes. And then just 58 years later, right, 58 years since this little hovering moment, the first human enters space. Um, in April 1961, Yuri Gagarin from the Soviet Union circled the Earth at a speed of 27,400 kilometers per hour. 
And of course, further developments have, have led to greater aviation milestones. And last year, NASA successfully landed the Perseverance rover on the surface of Mars and piloted the first controlled flight on another planet. This is the Ingenuity Mars helicopter that, that um, is like hovering and, and uh, the rover and the helicopter are taking pictures. And I don't know if you saw in the news this week, there had been like a piece of string that was like this big mystery. What is this piece of string? And a few days ago, they, they figured out that it's part of the netting from the rover that had fallen off. Um, but, you know, looking, looking at this, right, and, and, and thinking about all, all the history of um, flight and aviation, human knowledge, engineering, and technology have come an incredible long way. But the truth is, we are still nowhere near understanding how birds fly. So this is a quote from the Smithsonian. Um, Paleontologists are still solving the puzzle of how flight came about. But one of the most widely accepted hypotheses involves small bipedal dinosaurs that use flapping motions while running similar, similar to fledglings of modern birds. So this is, this, is, this, this is modern science trying to understand how did birds get to fly. So their, their hypothesis, they have had different ones over the years. One was that they thought you know, there was climbing involved, but now the latest hypothesis from a few years ago is that these dinosaurs had appendages and they would run really hard and flap and then... Um, over time, uh, they believe over 60 million years, that those arms became wings through um, natural selection, etc. Now, remember what I explained about the Endeavour tiles, right? This Endeavour space shuttle. When you, if you see this, would you ever think this happened by chance? That all the materials of steel and glass and fiber thrown together and over and over again, right? made all those 24,200 individual tiles that I explained have to be precisely in the right place, that they went into the exact place they're supposed to go, that all the wiring, right, all the coding, everything that, that makes up the space shuttle inside went exactly where it's supposed to go so that this machine could go up to space 25 times and come back. If I said, is that possible? Many of us would say, well, that's highly unlikely. We look at this machine and we know that someone made this. Many someones, many intelligent and brilliant someones made this machine. Yet this space shuttle is no match for a bird. Humans have built a space rover that can land on Mars, but humans have not yet figured out all the engineering and science behind the wings of a bird. For example, this is a peregrine falcon, fastest animal uh, creature in the world. And for those of you who read my blog yesterday, um, I learned a lot about peregrine falcons because of my son, Micah. Who, who, this is his favorite animal. And he loves them so much that while we were on our trip to California, um, Everywhere we went, we were like looking at the sky, trying to find this rare bird because he desperately wanted to see it. So Sequoia National Park, Yosemite National Park, one of, and, and every park we ever went to, we're all like, every single one of us, all the adults are like looking in, uh, for this. Um, we actually heard it cry out, but we couldn't see it because it was too far away uh, when we were at Sequoia National Park. 
But Micah says that they're his favorite creatures because, in his words, they're super cool. Oh, oopsie. Sorry, I did something. I'll put it back. back. And they are super cool. They can see prey three kilometers away. Okay? So imagine, I, I can't even um, imagine being three kilometers high up, like a really super tall sky uh, scraper. And it can spot a tiny little mouse on the bottom of the, you know, um, skyscraper on the ground and it can dive bomb <clears throat> excuse me in excess of 320 kilometers per hour and when it dive bombs it dives bombs with such astonishing precision adjusting their flight as they're just almost like a stone just dropping from the sky but they adjust their angle to catch their moving prey without decreasing speed and scientists have been researching this particular bird, the peregrine falcon, for decades, trying to figure out how in the world do they do this, right? Look at, look at that. It, it, it's the way that um, it just, this is slow motion. But um, when you watch, you go on YouTube later and you can watch it when, it when it isn't in slow motion. And it's just so fast. And um, in 2017, like I said, scientists have been studying this particular bird. And um, in 2017, a team of scientists at Oxford University attached tiny cameras and GPS units to harnesses um, to track the peregrine falcon, to try, try to study them a bit more. And what they discovered was that <coughs> the path peregrine falcons take towards their prey can be described using the same guidance law called proportional navigation that missile engineers developed for missiles with moving targets. Think missiles launched from ships to knock out incoming projectiles. And the um, professor um, of mathematical biology at Oxford who, who ran this study, he said, Falcons aren't doing complicated computations to figure out where the target is going to be. But the behavior that you see, that you see almost looks as if they do. There is an elegance to the fact that it's the same thing control missile engineers have ended up at. At the end of the study, he wrote, it remains an open question how peregrines might mechanize proportional navigation. And he notes that, um, mysteriously, right, these peregrine falcons, they have this proportional navigation system built into them that human engineers have finally arrived at, right, through technology. And he's like, it just so happens that they're very similar. And it just so happens that dragonflies and bats have the exact same parallel proportional navigation system. How is it that they all have um, developed this complex system? I'm not a scientist or an engineer, but I too have a theory that behind all of nature, right, behind all of the creatures and behind Earth's history is a designer, an intelligent designer who is benevolent, who is creative, who is personal. That the peregrine falcon and the ridiculous platypus and you and I were all created by that creator who is beyond our understanding and yet he cares about us, he interacts with us, he argues with us. The book of Job is considered by some scholars to be the oldest book of the Bible. Its ancient Hebrew uh, vocabulary and the depiction of the people, places, and customs place the story 
possibly around the time of Abraham, which is around 2000 BC, which is over 4,000 years ago. It's widely considered to be, and I quote the Encyclopedia Britannica, one of the masterpieces of world literature. And if you've never read it before, I highly recommend it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's about 51 chapters, um, but it's all written in ancient Hebrew poetry. And the book of Job contains the age-old question that we have all had. Why did bad things happen to good people? And as Job, a good man, suffers incredible tragedies, we're talking about um, the loss of his, all his seven children one day. We're talking about the loss of all his incredible wealth in one day. We're talking about the loss of health and incredible physical suffering. Right? So this is intense suffering that most of us don't go through. And as Job mourns in this incredible, intense suffering, he's presented with possible explanations for this question by the people around him. His wife says, curse God and die. In other words, abandon your faith. Right? Forget about it. His friends say, well, maybe his friends believe in a God, but they say, well, you, you probably did something wrong. And, and God is punishing you, so repent. Search your heart, right? Don't be proud. Confess. You must have done something really bad to deserve this. But Job rejects, I, you know, his wife's, you know, <clears throat> bitter kind of just abandon your faith, forget about God. And he also rejects his friend's bad theology and worldview. And he insists that he does not deserve this suffering, nor does he want to give up his belief in God. But that places Job in this place of dilemma, right? Because on the one hand, he believes in a just and a good God. But on the, on the other hand, he's having such a rough time. And so he's crying out to God. God, why is this happening to me? Where are you? What's going on? And his cries and his friends attempt to find meaning or rationale in his suffering are written in for like 48 of the chapters out of 51. And then at last, uh, sorry, no, it's not 51, it's like 41, so 38 out of the 40. And at last, God responds to Job, but not in the way that he nor we expect. Job chapter 38, verses 1 to 7. So I'm just going to grab some more. <clears throat> And the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundation? Tell me, if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footing set? Or who laid its cornerstone? while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Verses 11 onwards. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in its thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said thus far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up their dominion over the earth? Chapter 39. Oopsie. 
does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings towards the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? You see, God's response to Job's complaint is, there is so much you don't understand, right? Look at nature. Do you know how the birds fly? Right? And God lists several kind of awesome creatures when he talks about the Leviathan. And, 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 he, and he's basically saying, do you understand how these animals work? Do you understand how the stars burn? And the truth is, as wise as we think we are, we don't know. And as much research as we do, we can never fully grasp the incredible wisdom of the creator God. How can we comprehend the math and the science and the beauty behind one single creature? And yet, we make definitive conclusions about human existence, that we're here by chance, that there is no meaning or purpose or life beyond the grave, that we're only creatures trying to survive in order to pass on our genetics. Shakespeare's infamous anti-hero Macbeth said, Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's the bleak reality if there is no God. If there is no creator and we are here by chance, what is the point? We make some noise and then we're gone and it means absolutely nothing. Is that what resonates as truth? Or is there something else that when we see a peregrine falcon fly or when we hold a newborn baby or when we feel that longing in our hearts for something permanent, could it be that there is a God who created us to be incredible, to be eternal, to be intimate with him? Could it be that God is good even if the details of why this and why not that are unknown to us. God says to Job and to us in Job chapter 40, verses 8 to 14, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. In other words, God's being sarcastic here, right? God is saying, okay, Job, can you do better? Do you think you can dole out justice? Can you know who is deserving of judgment? He says, all right, go ahead. You know, if you think you know who the wicked are, go ahead and destroy them. And see if you can, in that process, you think you can save yourself? Do not condemn God to justify yourself. Do not write God off in order to rationalize your choices. Do not throw away faith because you don't understand why bad things happen to good people. Instead of seeking certainty for, ans for questions that cannot be answered right now, we need to seek the source of all wisdom himself. Despite his questions, 
Job never wavers in his belief that God has the answers. So in Job 28, this is what Job had said. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it, and he said to the human race, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. You see, the fear of the Lord is wisdom. And, and sometimes we don't like that phrase because we're like, oh, why, why should we be afraid of God? But the fear of the Lord is actually incredible wisdom because it means we understand who God is. Have you ever met someone so brilliant, so talented, so accomplished that you feel intimidated in their presence? Right? You, you, you feel tongue-tied. You, you feel like a complete idiot. You're a little bit afraid. And it's not because they're mean. It's not because they've, they're harassing you. It's just you're just so intimidated because they're so incredible. Well, no wonder every single person who has encountered God has been afraid. Because they recognize that they're in the presence of this powerful, incredible, uh, supernatural um, God who is worthy of worship. You have no fear of God if you don't truly understand how, who he is. But when you come to that realization, right, that by the power of his word he can split protons, that there is this fear of God, a healthy fear of God that, you know, some people call it respect or reverence. But I think it is a little bit of fear, too. Um, I like how in the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, he, he writes about Aslan the lion. And the children ask, ooh, is he safe? And he's like, no, he's not safe. He's a lion. But he's kind. And I think that describes God so well, that he's kind. But he's not safe. Right? He, he's, he's a lion. He's powerful. He's a God who um, demands our attention. And we have a response to make. And when we accept that such an awe-inspiring God wants to talk to us, that he wants to reason with us, that he has a plan for our lives, right? that in itself awakens in us, yes, a bit of fear because it's like, well, now what, right? How do we respond to God? How do we interact with this God? But also there is now a purpose. There is now uh, a meaning behind however many years we live here. Which one is more fearfully and wonderfully made? The Endeavor Space Shuttle or the Peregrine Falcon? Something for you to ponder about. Which one is more valuable? I leave you with a final thought. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 27, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying at a single hour to your life? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? 
for the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I pray that as you accept that there is a God, that he created us, that he invites us into a personal relationship, that we will understand our true value in God, and as a result that we will discover peace, purpose, and the presence of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for peregrine falcons and for all the creation that points to not just an intelligent designer, but a creative designer with a sense of humor who loves diversity and who loves life. And Father, we want to pray that as we grapple with these questions about what it means that you are creator, what it means that we are created by you, help us to realize just how much you care about us, how much we have value in your sight. And Father, I pray that as a result of, of accepting, <laughs> excuse me, accepting your incredible invitation um, to be molded by you, I just pray that we would discover your purpose in each of our lives. And as you fulfill that purpose, that we experience that incredible joy and peace that you alone can bring. I pray for those who are sick, including Roy, that you would help them all to feel better soon. Um, we pray for those who are suffering, especially chronically, like Ingrid and Ruth. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring healing and relief and comfort. We pray in Son's name. Amen.